for welcoming me. Nick, thanks for the opportunity to do this. Unique today, because usually when I'm asked to preach, I, I tend to default to a letter of Paul or something like that. It's very concrete and kind of has some, something to do, something to walk out with. So that's kind of easy, because it's given to you. But we're in the Gospels. And so Nick has been working us through the Gospels in a chronological-ish fashion from before Jesus was a person on the earth, when he was the creator of the earth, all the way up to Jesus being born. And we have made it to the point where Jesus is a young boy. Um, His ministry, public ministry, hasn't started yet. So the bad news is I have no slides, which means I can go anywhere. I have nothing to control me at all, no direction, except for going to Luke chapter 2. So You're going to have to read this yourself because it won't be up there. Go to Luke chapter 2. We're going to start in 41 through 52. So because Nick said, hey, this is where we're going to be, and this is the passage you're going to preach out out of or preach from, it it did make it a little bit easier. I didn't have the whole Bible to choose from. I just had a couple of chunks. So we're going to look at this, Luke 2, 41 through 52, and then also a chunk in Matthew that begins to look at, or actually, the whole beginning of John the Baptist. So we have two big characters. We have the young boy Jesus, and we have John the Baptist. Now, the neat thing about having the passage established for you is you can just ask ChatGPT to write the outline for you because it's read the Bible. So, yes, I did that. It was very entertaining. Uh, I will read just a little bit of it to you. Actually, I'm not going to read that part, but uh, let me show you. So I asked ChatGPT, I said, write me a um, three-point outline about this passage, Luke 2, 41 through 52. And it gave me three points, and it even gave me a conclusion, and it was really boring. I don't think it was necessarily wrong. I mean... It kind of just, what is it doing? It's grabbing a whole bunch of historical internet stuff and like summarizing it and packaging it up in a very readable way. That's what is amazing about these new AIs is it's very readable. It's like, oh, sounds good. But it could be totally wrong because it's based on the internet. So it's not reliable, but it's very readable. So I ditched the outline. Have no fear. We're not using ChatGPT's outline. It's entertaining. You can do it yourself. You'll probably get something similar. But more fun, I said, okay, write me a joke based on this passage. So I have something good to like lead into the sermon at least, something engaging and fun. And so I am going to read this because this was definitely entertaining. I said, hold on. ChatGPT answers, certainly Here's a lighthearted joke that connects well with the story of Jesus in Luke 2, 41 through 52. Why did Jesus' parents always lose him in crowded places? I don't know. Why? Because they didn't have a Find My Son app on their smartphone. That's not funny. I mean, you're laughing because it's not funny. You're like, come on. Okay, so um, I said, I literally, this is what I said, that wasn't funny, try again. (laughs) Oh, ChatGPT answers, apologies for that. Here's another attempt. 
Why did Jesus' parents get worried when they couldn't find him in the temple? Because they thought he might have been cross with them. (laughs) How could you go from like bad joke to like, oh my gosh, that's like worse. Like why would you even say that? It's not, it's not just not funny, it's like bad. And then, well, ChatGPT, he kind of covers himself or herself or whatever it is. It says, remember, humor is subjective, and the response can vary based on the audience. Feel free to modify or adapt the joke as needed to align with your congregation's sensibilities and preferences. Whew. Hey, if learning isn't fun, why do it, right? It's fun. ChatGPT, very interesting. Who knows where it's going to go? Could destroy the world. We don't know. But it's entertaining at least. Uh, So we will leave ChatGPT to not write our sermon outlines, and I'll do it the old-fashioned way of actually reading the scripture. So join me in Luke chapter 2. All right. So, Jesus has recently been uh, circumcised, christened, kind of, that happened a little bit ago. Now, we're a little later on in his life, and we have verse 41. Read with me. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned back to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they, his parents, did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So interesting, uh, of all the Gospels, Luke spends the most significant time, far more time than everybody else, in the story of Jesus before his public ministry. So the other Gospels brush on a little bit. You get a bit of the birth of Jesus in Matthew. Mark doesn't touch it at all. Um, but Luke spends a significant amount, and it's partly because that was Luke's mission. He says at the beginning, I lay this out in chronological fashion so that you, he wrote it to this guy named Theophilus, so that you would know the full account of what happened. So Luke spends the most time looking at his childhood, or Jesus' childhood, but we really don't have much else. Um, We have him as a baby, we have him here as a young man, or a young boy, Um, And then later, we'll see here even Luke, we pop into Jesus the adult and his public ministry. Um, Interesting that in Luke, 
Jesus' first words, the first red letters of Luke, are, is this sentence. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Uh, this is an interesting phrase. One, it says his parents didn't understand his answer at all. They're like, what are you talking about? And I, when I read it that way, I think, isn't it obvious? He was in the tabernacle, the house of God. Like all through Psalms and ever since there was a temple, the Jews, Israelites, referred to it as the house of God. So that would make sense. But a little bit of extra reading, and I am not a Hebrew scholar, but other Hebrew scholars have noted there's another way that this phrase could have been said or interpreted into English. The, and a lot of you will have a Bible that has a little note, and then down at the bottom will be an alternative inter, interpretation or translation of that phrase. And many of them will say, instead of, in my father's house, they will say something like, I had to be about my father's business, or in the things of my father, or doing the things of my father which makes more sense that his parents would be confused. Because why would this 12-year-old, who's hanging out with the leaders of the, the church at the time, of the religion, asking deep theological questions, why would his answers be, where were you? He says, well, wouldn't you know I need to be about my father's business? Well, his, his father, his earthly father was a carpenter, right? So he wasn't doing carpentry. He wasn't about Joseph's business. Jesus, the 12-year-old boy, in this sentence says, my father, he is the one behind this thing we call faith in God. He is God. He is the religion. My father is God. Jesus, the 12-year-old boy, knows that his father is the heavenly father, is the creator of the universe is God. That's interesting. Because I asked that question. I've had that question asked. I've asked that question. What did Jesus know? Like, when he was a baby, did he do miracles? When he was a little kid, did he cry? Did he disobey his parents? Did he, you know, what was baby Jesus and little kid Jesus like? And I don't know. No, nobody else really knows. This is the closest we have to any sort of description of young boy Jesus in the Bible. So this apparently means that young boy Jesus, he probably knew who he was better than his parents did. He knew what he was about, even as a 12-year-old, at some level. I don't know what level. But enough to know he... So a 12-year-old boy at that point had probably already been trained somewhat in the Old Testament, right? That's all they had. They didn't have the New Testament. They had the Old Testament. He was a Jewish boy. So... And he was a firstborn. So put all those together, and he would have been in the plan of being that chosen boy of the son to really study the scriptures and be the leader of the family. So in that sense, it was normal for him to know a lot about scripture, but somewhat abnormal because he impressed the people that he met. I don't know what to make of this. I don't have a great observation except to note that Jesus knew what was going on. He was not your normal 12-year-old. The last little bit of that, that kind of, I think, is a hint towards that same thing. Um, 
when it says in verse 51, and a couple different versions of this, it says, and he went with them to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Uh, does anyone's translation say continued to be subjective or something like that? Does anyone have that one? So is it, yours does, Cooper? There's a couple ways that one is also a different Bible translation is translated, but the one, what does yours say, Cooper? He was subject to them. So, okay, this is, here's my theory. He just answers this question, didn't you know I would be about my father's business? At that point, if those religious leaders had noticed that this boy already knew a ton about religion, they probably would have said, hey, why does he stay and become a teacher? To become employed or in training to be a religious leader. But he doesn't. For so somehow, somehow, and I think when it says, like what Cooper says, he continued to be subjective or submissive to them, I think he chose to go with his parents instead of staying in the temple. I don't know. I'm speculating. But Jesus, I think at this point, is saying, I'm not on that path. I'm not on the path to be a religious leader, which we find out later as we keep reading that he definitely was on a different path than your average Pharisee, Sadducee, religious leader. Okay. That's all I have for Jesus. That's the beginning of the continuing story of Jesus. We're going to shift our attention because that's what Luke does. The next chunk of passage is Luke. And in Luke chapter 3 now, we get to meet a new character, which this character was hinted at. Um, he kind of already existed in the birth of, let's see, is this Jesus' cousin, right? Am I right? Because it's Mary's sister. What was her name? I don't remember. Elizabeth, that's it. Okay, so Mary's sister Elizabeth has a baby at the same time, and that baby is named John, so it's Jesus' brother, earth, uh, earthly cousin, sorry, earthly cousin. All right, read with me. But okay, time out. Yes, so Luke goes into John the Baptist, but I'm going to cheat us over into Matthew. So go to Matthew chapter 3. Same story, same introduction of, of John, um, but just comes at it from a different perspective and says a couple different things that were entertaining. So go to Matthew chapter 3. I'm going to do the same thing. Verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, quotes, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Verse 4, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to see John, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, 
He said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Okay, I mentioned before, um, teaching from the Gospels is very different than teaching from an epistle. An epistle says, Paul says, do this, because this is Christ-like and this is not. Uh, in the Gospels, we're, I'm teaching from a narrative, a story. So we, as readers of the story, get to interact with that in a very different way than if we interact with a letter written to us. Um, communion is a Gospel narrative. Pastor Ben read from Corinthians, a letter from Paul, where Paul gives the, um, the admonition, the commission, the job of remembering Jesus in communion. But even there, Paul says, this is what Jesus did, continue to do it. So communion is a gospel story. Uh, very briefly, go to Matthew chapter 26. We're, we're already in Matthew, so I'm sorry, I che uh, cheat you forward a little bit into 26, verse 26. This is the narrative, the story within the gospel of communion. It's very short, so I'm going to read it real quick. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and we had given thanks. He gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So we have the gospel narrative, the actual story of Jesus doing communion with his 12 disciples. Uh, the beauty of communion, this is one of the things I really cherish about this thing that we do communion is it is one of the direct, in our church structure, direct invitations into the story of Jesus. So unlike an epistle that says, hey, go do this, the narrative says, how do you fit in? Or here's where you fit in. In communion, it's directly something we participate in. So when we look at John the Baptist and the story of John the Baptist, I want you to think a little bit similarly, like, where do I fit? Because sometimes you'll identify with a Pharisee. Sometimes you're going to identify with John the Baptist. Sometimes you might see yourself or identify in the storyline with the crowd. So it's not a direct tell me what to do. It's a reflection on where do I fit? How is this me? Uh, we did that at the gathering this week. On Thursday it was fun. We kind of wrestled through what Nick had described, the three different ways to respond to Jesus. One was indifference, to like, yeah, whatever. 
One was hostility, like, get out of here. I don't want anything to do with this. And the other was worship. So again, we were experiencing, reflecting on, participating, and putting ourselves in that narrative. So let's do that with, with John just a little bit. Okay, back to Matthew 3, verse 1. I read this already, right? Okay, good. I don't have to read it again. I almost thought, wait, wait, I didn't read this. Wait, I did read this. Yes, I read this already. Okay, so now you got it. Um, so John the Baptist, the baby born at the same time as Jesus, very similar in age. He appears in the wilderness. We don't know where he was beforehand, but he, he shows up in the culture of the Jews as this weirdo in the woods saying, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And the way that you show your repentance is you get baptized by John in the River Jordan. Um, so John, he became very popular. Like he, was, he was unique. I don't think everybody wore camel-haired cloaks and ate grasshoppers. There probably was a good chunk of people. But John was unique in this dynamic figure saying dramatic things. And he became popular. So popular, like crowds were coming out to get baptized. So popular, not only that just the public, but the religious leaders started to show up. So let's see, where was it? I don't know what verse it was, but we see that the Sadducees and the Pharisees, verse 7, Pharisees and Sadducees were also coming to his baptism. So this is unique because he, wasn't, he was a Jew, everybody knew that, but he wasn't a religious leader. He kind of came out of the woods but he had generated enough attention that even the religious leaders were showing up to be baptized. Any idea why they would do that? Like, why would a religious leader go out to this weirdo in the desert to get baptized? My best guess is because it was popular. Like, it's where the things were happening. It's, it was the religious repentance, baptism, wow, this is amazing, the, the big tent revival, lots of action, craziness, wild things were happening in the woods, and the Pharisees and Sadducees, being the leaders of the religion, are like, yeah, we want to tap into some of that energy, so let's go and get baptized. And it must have been close enough to what they were preaching that they thought it'd be okay, it'd mix in well, and they would generate some of that attention. But you see what happens as soon as they show up. John calls them out. He knows why they're there. He says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's saying, You're a hypocrite. You're here because it's popular. If you want to do something effective in the kingdom, follow through with this thing you're participating in. And he knew that what are the Pharisees and Sadducees all about? They're all about demonstrating their worthiness to be a leader. They're all about all show, no go. And that's what John calls them out on, their hypocrisy. He says, instead of being the guy that chitter-chatters about what's right and what's wrong, go do the right thing. He also calls them out when he says this in the verse 9. He says, don't presume... We have Abraham as our father. So this is a Pharisee and a Sadducee. They're Jews. They're the religious leaders. 
their, uh, a lot of their authority was based on their heredit, heredity, hereditariness, heredit, heredit, their ancestors. Um, they built all their authority on they were children of Abraham and God had chosen Abraham and they were the righteous line of Abraham all the way through. And, and again, we're beginning to see the message of the Gospels that this supposed authority you have because of who your father was is not legitimate. It's, it's not enough. And it's not the message we're going to hear as we move forward. So they get called out pretty, pretty quickly, and that will be a trend throughout the rest of the Gospels. Okay. Um, yeah, note that baptism here, again, it's said directly that the baptism was a sign of repentance for sins. Um, so the baptism, even, even then, I don't think they thought the baptism was a magical event. It was a demonstration that someone had admitted to a wrongdoing and was turning, repenting from wrong towards right. And a demonstration of that was to go and be baptized in the water by John. So this was a demonstration of someone's change in their life. Um, let's look at this. Uh, so, oh, one note. Pharisees and Sadducees. Anybody know who they are? I kind of just learned this. I knew they were religious leaders. That's about all I knew. But I'm like, okay, well, what's the real difference? So here's the unique real difference. The Sadducees were the ones who were the Old Testament. We believe in the Old Testament, and we do what it says, people. The Pharisees, they had been there for a very long time. The Pharisees were kind of new. They were actually like a new little offshoot of the Sadducees, and but they leaned more into the whole set of laws that were written after the Old Testament, like the commandments in Deuteronomy. There's a whole chunk of things that were written after Deuteronomy that lived in the Jewish texts. So the Pharisees were the ones that were leaning heavily into all the other rules. So Pharisees like rules on top of rules. Sadducees were like, we're the OG rules. You guys are the new school rules. And they really conflicted on this idea of what is the afterlife. It doesn't show up much here, but interesting to note, the Pharisees were the young bucks, the Sadducees were the old guys. Both called out consistently by Jesus as doing the wrong thing, being hypocrites. Okay, who is John? Remember, we're kind of like, think of who these people are and understand who they are. So John, in this, Matthew... Verse 3, it says, This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, verse 3, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Any idea how you would figure out what that is referencing? In your Bible, there are little tiny letters, right, or numbers. I do this all the time because I want you to be able to do this at home. Look at those little numbers and letters. If you don't have it, it's okay. Many Bibles have it. They are going to be pointers to other pieces of Scripture. This is a direct quote of Isaiah 40. Um, Isaiah 40 is a big um, prophecy. I'm not going to read it all, but I just want you to know that this is a, it's, it's a callback 
when something in the New Testament references a verse like this, there's going to be a letter, and it'll send you back to Isaiah. When that happens, yes, it's a direct quote of that chunk, but it is also a reminder that there is more in that chapter for you to pay attention to. So don't quit. I'm, I'm not answering any questions here. I'm just giving you something to look at. Go back to Isaiah 40. See where John finds his identity in that verse. But then keep reading it. Because when the New Testament says, go look back, it's saying, don't just look at this verse. Look at the whole chapter. Because there is more there. I'll give you a hint. The more there is who is Jesus. Because yes, we find out who John is in this little callback to Isaiah 40. But what is John doing? What is his identity? He is the one saying someone is coming. Something is coming. Something greater than I is coming. So John's whole ministry is not about making himself the famous one, but about pointing to Jesus. So when you read Isaiah 40, think about Jesus. Okay, um, <clears throat> what am I supposed to be done? 11.15? 11 o'clock? Sweet. Okay. Okay, I won't take much longer. But there are a couple of other things I want to point out. Uh, and again, I, I don't have answers for you. Like I'm, my jo- I don't feel like my job was to like, tell you what to think. Um, but I do want to help you think. So I'm pointing out a couple of things, add you, give you a little bit of fuel, and then let you go dig in and find yourself and understand what's here. Um, so, you, cool little spot. After he um, rips on the Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, John says in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Other translations might say, sandals I am unfit to untie or to remove. Uh, Just context-wise, back then, people did not wear Nikes. They wore sandals. They weren't Crocs. They were sandals. Um, And so their feet were very dirty. Uh, And, you know, that culture didn't have flush toilets. And they had lots of livestock. And so when you're wandering around in the ancient, not ancient, later Jewish culture, you had really dirty feet. So the person whose job it would be to take off your sandals or to wash your feet would have been the absolute lowest possible position you could find and still be a human. So again, why? John is saying, who am I? I'm one who points to the one who is coming, who is far greater than I. Uh, one more thing that's a fun... Uh, is this right here? Oh, yeah. Okay, go down a little farther. Uh, right after the, the carrying your sandals thing is verse 12. Uh, again, John is talking about uh, God in this case. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Wheat and chaff. I learned something when I was looking at this. And it wasn't for me. It was from somebody else's thing that I read. 
and I had never thought of wheat and chaff this way, and it helped. So I don't know who it was. I didn't write it down. It was on a webpage somewhere. Uh, so I'm sorry I don't have the author. But I love it, and it helped me understand. So wheat is the kernel. Chaff is the shell, right? Is there any wheat farmer out here? Okay, good, then I'm safe. Um, wheat is the kernel. The chaff is the shell. The kernel is what you turn into bread and flour and yummy, delicious things. The chaff, the shell, is thrown away. It's a husk. We don't want it. Um, and, and it's interesting, just before this, when um, John is saying that the root of the tree will be cut down and thrown into the fire, you kind of get this idea that he's saying, the religious leaders, you guys are going to get chopped down and throw it into the fire. And then you go and you read about this chaff and the kernel and the unquenchable fire, and you think, oh, just those religious leaders, they're the chaff. They're going to get thrown into the fire. And I was like, I get it. That makes sense. That's where I normally went. But I read this, uh, someone who was a, doing prison ministry, and he was referencing his experience doing prison ministry, and he took the wheat and chaff in a direction that I hadn't. The chaff, the shell, is part of the wheat. It's not two separate things. It's one thing. And what does God do with the chaff? He separates it from the kernel, and that is burned and thrown away. But the kernel remains. It's not this person was burned and thrown away. It's the useless part of me, the broken part of me, the part that doesn't bear fruit that God removes, separates, and throws away. So instead of it being a condemnation on bad people, it's another way to look at wheat and chaff as God is working with me to refine me, to remove some of the broken, shelly, not-so-helpful, purposeless pieces those are burned and taken away, yet the kernel remains and can bear fruit. I like that. Because I need that. Like, I identify with that. Like, there are parts of me that are broken. There are parts of me that don't bring God glory. There are parts of me that are, like in our, our discussion, that are hostile to God, that are indifferent to God, that are, they're all those parts that, they're not, they're not fruit-bearing. And God promises to help remove those things and leave the good fruit. One more thing, and I'll be done. Uh, and I'm cheating a little bit, because I wasn't allowed to go to this verse. But turn with me to Matthew 11. You will forget by the time Nick gets here anyways, I'm sure. Matthew 11, verse 2. Okay, John the Baptist, last point of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, camel hair, locust, honey, crazy hair, I'm sure. Um, he is preaching in, the wil or preaching in the wilderness. People are coming to him, and he is preaching that Jesus is God, and he's coming. Like, this man that comes after me, he is the son of God. Like, look at him. And later, we didn't read this, but later, Jesus walks to the river, and he sees John, and John says, Behold the Lamb of God. Jesus. Look, it's right there on that sign. Huh. 
The Son of God. He literally says that. Jesus, the Son of God. And he says, the Lamb. Is there a Lamb out here? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So that was John, right? That was his job, to point to Jesus. Okay. Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. Soon after, like, John's, like, John was calling people out for stuff. He called out Herod. Herod was the king. Herod said, I don't like that. Go to prison. So John gets sent to prison. Now, when John heard in prison, this is verse 2, Matthew 11, about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, so this is John asking Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John the doubter? That's what he's doing, right? He's in prison. He's like, God, why am I here? I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was told by God to be a preacher and to tell everyone that Jesus was coming. Now I'm in prison, and I don't know if I did the right thing. Like, is this real? Did I just totally mess this up? Did I imagine the voices in my head? I've never heard anyone say John was a doubter. He's John the Baptist. But guess what? He wasn't all that confident sometimes, too. I felt that one, too. Sometimes I don't really know if this is the right thing. And that's okay. John the Baptist asked the same question. What was Jesus' answer? Jesus says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I love how Jesus never just says, yeah, I'm the guy. I mean, he does sometimes, but he sends back this message to John. He said, John, I can't wipe out your doubts. I can't just prove to you that I am the one. But you can look around, and you can see what's happening. In the same way that he challenged the Pharisees and the Sadducees to make it count, to do what they said they were going to do, he tells John, see what I'm doing. That's how you know who I am. Worship team, you can come back up. So as you think through the narrative of the gospel, keep poking back into where do I fit? Where do I see myself, and, and how do I resonate with these characters in the gospel? Because they were people too. This wasn't just a made-up story. This is people that experienced Jesus, that saw blind people see, that saw lame people walk. They got to experience Jesus, in which we'd get to do a little bit too in communion.